of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. How are you? I'm well. A pregnant pause before our Patreon supporters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've recovered from being exposed to the St. Patrick's Day uniforms. Have I? Have I, Ben? Well, you said you were well, so I'm just taking you at your word here. I look, I uh, <laughs> I am aware of where this small issue ranks in in the the list of crises that we are facing as a nation. <laughs> this is objectively unimportant, but I'm going to ask a question and I hope that our our listeners of Irish heritage will not take offense. Is St. Patrick's Day a, a holiday we have to commemorate on fields? <laughs> is that an on-field holiday? <laughs> yeah, I, I see what you mean. Maybe it doesn't really rise to that level, especially if it's going to come with green caps. I just, the best case scenario that you can hope for was the combination that we ended up with. With um, I mean, I saw it with the Phillies and also with the Reds, where you had a red batting helmet and you had the green uniform. And look, it didn't look like St. Patrick's Day. It looked like Christmas. It looked like it was Christmas in March because we are in the month of March. Um, but it was at least not uh, offensive to the eye. But some of the some of these combos are, are either confusing because you have two teams in green uniforms and then you're like, which of these teams are the teams? Who is any who is anyone? Who are any yeah. of you? The Rays kind of looked like they were Tulane <laughs> because they had the, <laughs> you know, the the usual light blue Rays unis and then they had the green hat. So I you know, was sitting there wondering if they were the Pelicans, which as an aside, if anyone is um, paying attention to college baseball, Tulane's unis are just, they're just very sharp because they have the two little Pelicans on the bat, the way that the Cardinals have the two little Cardinals, except they're Pelicans. So they're just inherently cool to look at. But the worst was the, the, the Padres with their beautiful brown and yellow uniforms with the green yeah. hat on top. It's again like it, it, of all the of all the crises we face in this country, <laughs> this is not a crisis. I am here to t- I am admitting and aware of its relative importance, which is that it is not important at all. <laughs> but I've cared about a lot dumber stuff than this, so here yeah. we are. <laughs> no, it was bad, and I'm not even a uniform guy. Like for the most part, I just don't really fixate on uniforms. I don't care that much about uniforms unless it's truly extraordinarily great or bad. It just doesn't really register for me that much. But even I could sense that something was amiss here. And like, I'm not even great at 
fashion or like style <laughs> or like when people say, does this go, you know, do these colors go? I don't know who's to say if these colors are, are complementary. This is all subjective, isn't it? But I think this was not subjective. This was objectively bad. <laughs> the, the brown with the green, that was just a, a crime committed against uniforms <sighs> and should not be repeated. So yeah, even for me, someone who does not care about uniforms and colors of clothing in general, this still stood out. I have been watching more NBA uh, this year than I have at really any point over the last decade, at least, at least more regular season NBA, because it's just been it's just been nice to watch that. And my my consumption is tailing because there's baseball on, and so I am watching baseball. But I have found the re-entry to the NBA to be rough, or at least it was. Uh, I think I've got it handled now. But it was confusing because there were so many different uniforms, and some of the colors were not the colors I was like. Expecting. And sometimes and sometimes they play each other and the one team that is not the team you'd expect would be wearing the other team's color. And now I recognize enough of the players beyond the marquee guys where I can like turn on a game and be like, oh, I'm watching these two teams play and here's what each of them are. But it can be rough. And sometimes I feel that uh, we, we present this challenge to new viewers of baseball when we spring holiday uniforms on them that change things up and you got everyone in green. I don't know if any of the teams that don't put names on the back of their jerseys wore the green uniforms with another team wearing green because that would have been the worst combination of things but I'm just saying there's like the aesthetic complaint which is the one that the Padres fall in and then there's the the logistical complaint which is compounded by spring training and I just think you should be able to turn on a game and be like these are the teams that are playing I know immediately Uh, and (laughs) and I feel like these these holiday jerseys make it more complicated and if we're going to invite that level of complication into our lives I think we should think critically about how many holidays merit it i don't know if saint patrick's day is one of them i don't mean that as a knock on on saint patrick's day or the irish i'm just saying that like you know the post office is open it's open right so i mean yeah and that puts mother's day and father's day in play and you know what i'm okay with that too i'm okay with that being the bar like only post office holidays maybe i don't know there have been so many same color uniforms this spring. It, it <gasps> seems like more than usual, doesn't it? I, I mean, yeah. I know this has always been a thing. There's no rule against it in spring training, but a lot of people have been pointing it out. Some people have been emailing us about this. I mean, there are just a lot of games where it's just the red team against the red team. Right. And it's especially complicated with the St. Patrick's Day uniforms because the teams that went all green looked pretty good, but then both teams were green, which was not great, but still preferable to the mismatched multicolored Padres atrocity. So it's kind of disorienting. It's really hard to know who's on what team. So I don't know why this is especially rampant now or if I'm just imagining that or why this is so much more commonplace in spring training than it is during regular games. But can't they just wear their regular uniforms? Why does it have to be weird uniforms? I don't I don't know. It seems like you should coordinate these things. Again, especially in spring when you're just you're going to have guys out there who 
no one knows and then they all look the same and so it gets it gets confusing i think that it just speaks to what embracing such a limited color palette allows for right you're you're just bound to have more teams wearing the exact same color when every team is a version of red white and blue and look we play the national anthem at every baseball game despite it not being international competition so i think that the color palette and the anthem is too much of the same stuff we should just we need more purple uniforms there should be some pink uniforms like let's be bold and embrace a new aesthetic i don't know it just it all looks the same and if i feel at times confused i can only imagine what like a normal fan who was tuning in to be like i'd like to get to know my squad who are any of you (laughs) would say when they turn into the royals and the dodgers and they're both wearing blue yeah (laughs) all right well, there's our uniform rant. Is there anything <laughs> else we have to get off our chests about uniforms while we're at it? I just, I also think that, no, I don't have anything else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll be able to turn the page on some of the worst uniforms when the regular season starts. And that is what we're going to look forward to now. We're doing two team previews today. So later in this episode, we will be talking to Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times about the Mariners. But right now, we will begin with the Atlanta Braves. We are joined again by Grant McCauley, whom you may have heard on the Braves radio network doing pre- and post-game shows, but he also hosts the From the Diamond podcast. Hello, Grant. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So the projections for the Braves caused some consternation this year when they came out. And we'll save your projection for the Braves for the end of this segment. But if you could comment in general on, I guess it was Pakoda that was most notably low on Atlanta, (laughs) although even Fangraphs has the Mets Mm -hmm. projected to win the NL East. And so some fans are upset about this. And you can understand why, given that Atlanta has won back-to-back-to-back division titles and is coming off a strong season and made some major moves over the offseason. But if you could sort of sum up, and I know that Mike Petriello and others have written about this, but why do you think the projections are lower than perhaps the consensus or certainly how fans feel? And to be fair, the projections have been low on the Braves over the past few years as well. Yeah, I think there's obviously a lot to unpack there. And projections are fun in terms of it just gives us, I think, a baseline maybe for what we could expect based on the statistical projection rather than the emotional projection of the expectations that the fan base, I think, has for this club, clearly after winning the division three consecutive years. And also on a long-term basis, I think kind of looking at what the rest of the division has been doing, which in recent years has not been much. The Mets were much more active this offseason, so I certainly understand why they have been projected to be a 90-plus win team, perhaps the division winner on a number of different projection services. But for fans, you know, they don't want to hear it. So they'll get upset about that kind of thing. But I feel like the Braves have been a club that has overperformed in terms of anything that the projections were asking of them. And I still feel like it's a club that in some ways is on the rise because you do have great young stars like Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies. And then you put in a Max Fried and a, a Mike Soroka, who are also, I think, you know, guys that we can look at as projectable pieces for this club. And then, oh, by the way, you got Freddie Freeman, who's an MVP, Marcelo Zuna flirting with a triple crown. You bring in a guy with a pedigree of a Charlie Morton. There's just a lot of different things I feel like. I don't know where they are in the projections, but I'm hoping that it kind of bears out over time that this is a club that's a little bit better than perhaps it looks on paper. 
think maybe the the rotation is the place to start with that, both as a source of potential under or overperformance, depending on how you view those projections, and also as a as a point of emphasis for them this offseason. So we had Atlanta last year sort of middle of the road in terms of the strength of their rotation. They're projected to be much better um, by our depth charts projections this year. But uh, it, it's an interesting group, right? You have this this group on the rise in their young guys, but they've also taken some some chances. So Charlie Morton has a, a long history of good performance or at least a mm-hmm. recent history of good performance but is 37 and then you have drew smiley who had a really great but very short 2020 in terms of his his performance so maybe we can start with morton and, and smiley kind of what they're expecting from those two and then where depth might come from if those guys do not sort of live up to the expectations that atlanta has for them this year Yeah, and I think that their depth is in a much better place than it was a year ago because that was a huge weakness for the Braves. There's no two ways about it. I mean, their depth in starting pitching seemed to go away inside of the first two weeks of the season. And really before that, because they brought in Felix Hernandez, thought maybe he would be something. He opted out of the season. Mike Soroka gets injured. Mike Fultonevich makes one start and gets banished to the minor leagues and even went out on waivers and nobody claimed him. And Sean Newcomb was also a non-factor. So those guys that you would have expected to be in rotation for the majority of the year, in addition to the injury to Mike Soroka in his third start, it just all of a sudden the rotation seemed to become a black hole after Max Freed, and that doesn't seem to be the case this year. Morton, I think obviously a late bloomer in his career, but he's a guy that I think you know what you're getting there. There was a little bit of shoulder issues last year that might have been something that slowed him down a little bit during the season, but he looked great during the playoffs, and I think that that's where the Braves were looking to get somebody who was proven and who had been on some winning ball clubs like Tampa Bay and like Houston and a homecoming as well for Charlie Morton, which I think was kind of neat. Smiley is what I would say the same kind of risk in talking to Alex Anthopoulos that they took with Travis Darno, where they felt like they identified some things about his previous season that they liked and they thought there was more to be had there. And that turned out to be true with Darno. It's a little bit different, I think, with pitchers, but they went right after Drew Smiley. They gave him $11 million, so they must feel pretty good about what he can offer to the middle, to the back end of that rotation. And having another lefty to go with Max Fried, I think, was pretty important to just break up all of the other right-handed options that they have in that rotation. But after the two veterans that they brought in, I still think that the core of it, led by Freed, with a returning Soroka, and even with a Kyle Wright and a Bryce Wilson, and of course Ian Anderson, who jumped onto the scene last year, This is a great group, and I think that they're in a much better place to have a starting five that they'll be able to depend on way beyond what they were able to in 2020, which was Max Freed and more or less just pray to get five innings out of somebody the rest of the time until you can get Freed back on the mound. Yeah, do you know what it was about Smiley that gave them the confidence? You know, not that they broke the bank, it's a one-year sure. deal, but it was perhaps better than people had expected given his track record of not staying healthy and sometimes not being effective, although he has had effective seasons, you know, I guess five or six years ago at this point. But that's something that we've seen more often now where, you know, Drew Pomeranz, for instance, mm-hmm. can have a, a good 26 innings with the Brewers and then he can get a multi-year deal and seemed like he sustained that in a small sample for the Padres last season. So you have this granular data and information on players now. And so it may not take a huge sample to have faith in someone. So do you know what it was that they saw in Smiley or liked about him? I know that when you look at the the fan graphs info, quite honestly, you can see that the uptick in velocity, but he also changed the usage of his pitches and became a little bit like Morton, where he was much more of a fastball, breaking ball, 
you know, two pitch style pitcher. He has more pitches. He can do more things, but he's really leaning on those more heavily. So the usage numbers and also that uptick in velocity, I think, really led them to believe that this was a guy that they could find at the right time in his career, even though some things injury wise had not gone right, that they could just plug in and really maximize the little bit that we saw last year. I mean, it's a small sample size. There's no two ways about that. I mean, the 2020 season was a weird sample size year in and of itself, but obviously they liked the, I think the usage of his pitches, uh, what he did with those pitches and that his velocity was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, at or near or above what his best velocities had been throughout his career. I want to move to the position player side now. And, you know, we're going to (laughs) allow you to extol the virtues of the Braves' big bats and uh, all the talent they have there. But I want to hone in on third base for a second because I think this is a place where there is a bit of not concern, but at least question in terms of how how much they're really going to get from Austin Riley and what Jake Lamb might bring as a a backup to him there. You know, Riley obviously has a, a good prospect pedigree, and I think that there was hopes that he might continue to take a step forward in 2020 and it's not that he had a terrible year at the plate but it wasn't very good and just in general Mm -hmm. it ended up being a below replacement level season for him so I guess what are they hoping he might be able to advance in his own game and then how much do you think Jake Lamb's actually going to factor there when I watched Austin Riley last year and this is a kid that I got to meet in 20 late 2016 early 2017 when he was in a ball and what I noticed about him was that he continues to work year over year to improve. And that, I think, was bearing out in his results in the minor leagues and culminated in just exploding onto the scene in 2019. And the power profile is clearly what they're looking for. I I think it's a middle-of-the-order bat. But right now, I think he has the opportunity to find himself, if you will, toward the bottom third of the lineup. But from third base perspective, defensively speaking, he's improved year over year. I think he's at least a good third baseman, you know, an adequate third baseman who, if he hits, more of his value is going to be found there. As far as Lamb, I think it's a left-handed hitting compliment for a guy like Riley. And of course, with Lamb, he does have that all-star pedigree. And he was better in Oakland when he got over uh, or just out of Arizona in general. And I think it's just trying to pair up players that, you know, you give Riley the opportunity, but having kind of a, a bit of a safety net or a change of pace, perhaps, if you need to move into a platoon and knowing that somebody's been there, done that the way that Lamb has. I think that's kind of what attracted him on that. You know, it's it's a very low guarantee in terms of the one year, what, 1.25 million, I think at most for Lamb is finding him a place where he said he could get an opportunity to do some winning. But I think the Braves are really focused on giving Austin Riley the lion's share of the at-bats out of the gate to see if the improvements that he made in 2020, including lowering his strikeout rate by 13%, it was still high, but he was able to lower it. I think the most of any qualified hitter in Major League Baseball last year. So progress is there, but it may take a while. And this is also a kid that's made more starts in the outfield in his career than he has at third base. So an uninterrupted season of 162 games to give him the opportunity to find some consistency and some continuity might be just what he needs to kind of unlock things and become the Braves third baseman of not just the future, but the present. Wanted to ask one more thing about the rotation before we get to some of the big boppers, because I think one of the reasons why the projections were maybe a little lower than some people expected is that guys like Max Fried, for instance, are not projected to be, you know, the aces that maybe some people are thinking of them as, yeah. or Mike Soroka, even just because, you know, he has been effective certainly, but doesn't have the strikeout stuff that you associate with a, a top of the rotation pitcher these days. And I think our pal 
pal Craig Goldstein wrote about Freed for Baseball Prospectus and, you know, just kind of pointing out that uh, as effective as he was, you know, some of his peripherals weren't really aligned with the ERA, at least. And so do you think there is regression coming for some of those guys? Soroka, when he's back, you know, what's a realistic expectation for him? Because, I mean, I guess you've got Ian Anderson, who looked totally dominant in his six starts last year. And so that's always a a dangerous thing when someone comes up and makes a splash the way he did. Then you just sort of assume that that will continue. And, you know, he did have the, the peripherals, maybe more so than some of the other guys. Yeah, I think he did. I mean, Freed has a higher strikeout rate than Soroka. And I think the two of them oftentimes end up getting compared, especially by fans of, well, who is the ace of the Brave staff or who is the ace yeah. of the future of the Brave staff? And keeping in mind the totally unrealistic expectation that not just one ace is going to be on the staff, but we're going to have three of them because it's going to be like it was in the 90s. But, you know, those days, those don't come very often. I mean, that's kind of a once in a generation type of collection of talent when you think about Maddox, Glavin and Smoltz. But fairly or unfairly, this has been something that has been the the calling card of looking at the Braves rotation. And it, it's it continues to be part of, I think, even the expectations that are put on some of these young pitchers, at least by the fan base. But speaking solely to their individual talents and the projectability of these guys, I think that Soroka's best days are ahead of him because of the aptitude that he has, the work ethic that he has. I mean, a freak injury last year, there's not much you can do about that. But this is one of the smartest pitchers of any age that I've had the opportunity to talk to about what he's looking to do on the mound. And I don't know if it's a really popular thing, but He's not afraid of pitching to contact if he can get the kind of contact that he wants. And he does seem to have done a pretty good job of that in terms of keeping the ball in the ballpark. And the Braves, defensively speaking, I think have done a nice job of of deploying their defense and having them in the right spots at the right times, which, of course, is a huge part of the game of baseball these days. So a pitch to contact guy is not the most exciting. It's certainly not the same kind of thing with when Ian Anderson comes up, beats Garrett Cole, runs up to Fenway Park, beats the Red Sox. Then, oh, by the way, I think he saved some of his best games for the playoffs. So Anderson certainly, you know, made a huge impression. And I'm really looking forward to him getting, whether it's 25 or 30 starts this year, to really find himself at the big league level. And for Freed, I think that we may have seen the best that he can be in 2020, especially in that first month. But I think this is a very consistent left-handed pitcher who also does a nice job of keeping the ball on the ground. Not really that homer prone either, but does have a higher strikeout profile. And his breaking ball, I think, is one of the best in Major League Baseball. So some different styles, certainly, especially with Soroka being more of a pitch-to-contact guy, at least for now. But I do think he's going to strike out enough batters, and I think he might actually find a way to develop into more of a strikeout pitcher as he continues to get starts and get reps. And he's extremely young, so I think the, the ceiling for him, it might not show in the projections, it might not be... Again, the most exciting numbers that you look at for a starting pitcher, but I think he does a lot of things right, and over time, that's going to continue to get him the results he needs to be a very effective, if not great, starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. And one more name in that mix, certainly at least until Soroka returns, is Kyle Wright, who has not managed to put things together as of yet. Is there still hope that he can take a step forward? I think there is. And it became another, I think, casualty. Well, call it a casualty because that would, uh, it sounds a lot more ominous. But when you draft a pitcher that does things really well and you put them in the system and then you start asking them to do different things that weren't part of their success. And for in his case, as a, a high level pitcher for Vanderbilt, one of the best college baseball programs you'll find, 
I think he was asked to start pitching differently and got away from really sinking the ball. And he got back to it last year. I think that helped him a lot. And for him and the times I've gotten to to speak with him about it, it just seems to be a, a confidence thing, but not in the he's having a breakdown on the mound, but just in a trying to remain in, in that moment and really command the innings and not try to do too much. That seems to be a phrase that it sounds very, you know, coach speak or very managerial, like, oh, he's out there trying to do too much. But I think it's true in his case. I think he overthinks a lot of situations and it's a, a mental hurdle for guys that they need to get over. And for him, I think that's where the consistency is, is on the other side of that hurdle. He's just got to figure out ways to get there. Despite the National League not having a designated hitter in 2021, the Braves brought back Marcelo Zuna, whose 2020 seemed to to bring together, you know, what we had always expected out of his bat outside that one good year he had in Miami and, and then what he could actually do on the field. He's been one of these kind of confounding players where you look at his peripherals and you think this guy should be hitting a lot better than he seems to. He did that in 2020. He's obviously being brought back to play left field where, you know, he's had some notable gaffes in the outfield, but Sure. His fielding numbers are actually not that terrible. <laughs> so I'm curious sort of how they are thinking about him for this year and then um, how much the sort of uh, seeming eventuality of a universal DH uh, factored into their decision to bring him back for as long as they did. I do think that that is pretty much the exact way I would describe it. I mean, he has had some moments that you look at. In particular, I think that ball in St. Louis that bounced on the warning track and, and he was climbing up the wall trying to bring back a home run that bounced in front of him. I mean, that's an embarrassing clip, and it's going to get a lot of play. It's going to get a lot of laughs. I'm sure his teammates have uh, already given him as much of a hard time, if not more, than fans give him for that. But I think he's been an adequate outfielder. I mean, he does have a gold glove, but as we know, sometimes that that stuff is a little bit subjective and, and certainly not the end-all, be-all. But he's a few years removed from that, and the shoulder injury he had, he just doesn't have a great arm. But I think as a left fielder, at least for the year 2021, I had no problem. In fact, I advocated for the Braves should bring him back, even if they have to play him in the outfield 135 or more times, minus the interleague games that you'll play on the road where you can DH him a little bit. And if you need to trade somebody out to be his defensive replacement in the eighth or ninth inning, if that makes you feel better as the manager, and then Brian Snitker can certainly do that. So the bat to me meant a lot, but also the fit that he was with that team as a legitimate, proven power hitter that they needed in the middle of the order when Josh Donaldson left and went to Minnesota they need, I think, I feel they needed that with Freddie Freeman to have that one-two punch. You can put Acuna and Albies toward the top of the lineup. I think Dansby Swanson's done a little bit at the top there, but Marcel seemed to be the one big bat that really completed the picture for the Braves. So I'm glad they did it long-term. I think they got a good deal in terms of value, even if he becomes a DH. They've put themselves, I think, in a nice place for the next four years with a guy that should be, unlike Donaldson, who was getting into his mid-30s, Marcel just got into his 30s. So I feel like this kind of worked out in a in a weird way where if they brought back Donaldson, maybe they're dealing with the injuries and a player who's older. Meanwhile, they kind of waited. They ended up with Ozuna. They end up bringing him back. I think they're getting more of his prime years than they would be getting from Donaldson. It's a little apples and oranges, but I do feel like that kind of worked out in the Braves' favor in the end. And the good news from the defensive standpoint is that however Ozuna does, you may have Christian Pache out there Yes, to Ozuna's left. So... How is Pache expected to hit? You know, he's someone who is known for his glove, so can he hit well enough to stay out there? And how good is the glove? I mean, how well does he have to hit to be a productive player? Yeah, whenever you're getting the Andrew Jones treatment and comparison, and I talked about, you know, every Brave starter for the last 20-something years getting the, is this the next Maddox or Glavin or Smoltz? That's certainly not fair. 
far as defenders and center field go, that's a lot to put on it. But I think Christian Pache, defensively speaking, is about as exciting as it gets. I, I believe he's been rated by a number of different publications as the best defensive player, at very least the best defensive outfielder in the minor leagues. He showed it off in the playoffs when he got pressed into duty last year when Adam Duvall got hurt. And I think if you've already kind of cut your teeth on that big stage, it's time to go ahead and, and take off all the training wheels and roll with this guy and maybe let him find himself offensively at the big leagues, which is a scary proposition. I, I know for some players that might set them back developmentally speaking, but I would rather him be playing center field for the Atlanta Braves under any circumstances and certainly more so than spending a month at the alternate training site, just kind of sitting around and waiting because the AAA season's not happening right now. So uh, there's a, a lot to like about Christian Pache defensively. In fact, it's very exciting. Offensively, he is still finding himself, but I think the rest of this club, the rest of this lineup is going to hit enough that you could pretty much put him in the eighth spot and just whatever you get offensively from him is kind of a bonus because I, I just, you can't count on Ender Enciarte to find it after a number of years of just really being a non-factor offensively and taking a step back defensively. And that's really the only competition that Pache had, I feel like, for the starting center fielder's job. They could bump Ronald Acuna over to center, but I feel like he's better in right. And with Pache being a premium defender in center, I mean, how much does that help out your pitching staff on a nightly basis as well? Especially if you're talking about maybe covering a little bit more so, as you mentioned, for a guy like Ozuna getting a lot of time in left. I think that Freddie Freeman's 2020 would have been impressive even if he hadn't suffered a really gnarly bout of COVID, but he, yeah. he did and managed to put together one of, I mean, his best year, I think, by WRC Plus at the plate. I don't really have a, a question about his performance because I think Freeman's ability is sort of a known entity, but I think one of the things about him that's been the most notable over his Braves career is that he was he was retained at a time when the franchise was kind of going through a lull and wasn't yet the force that it is now. Uh, he is going to be entering free agency this coming off season. What do you think the odds are that he is extended and what do you expect from him in 2021? I expect a, a more of the same from him in 2021 because any time that I've ever thought that, hey, maybe this past year was the best that we're going to see of Freddie Freeman and you know he's just not going to live up to it, he has just seemed to go out there and, and find another level or at the very least just maintain just being consistently exactly what they need in the order in the spot, whether it was hitting second as he did last year a lot or hitting third, and he just seems to be, as Freddie Freeman goes, so go the Braves. And in that way, it's very reminiscent of how Chipper Jones was uh, throughout the final probably eight or ten years of his career. Being a lifetime player in one city these days, and not just free agency, but just the way that baseball has, has trended, it's very uncommon. But I think that Freddie has made it pretty clear that not only does he want to emulate Chipper Jones at the plate, but he would like to emulate the career of Chipper Jones in that he wants to be a lifetime Brave. So I expect an extension to be done. I think that it could be anywhere between five to seven years and could carry him into his late 30s and continue to have him be a, a key member of the Atlanta Braves and start to make, I think now at this point, when you've been playing for a decade and won an MVP and done some of the things he has offensively, he's going to try to start making, I would imagine, a case that could lead him to Cooperstown, which is also a really exciting thing. And I hate to project overly too much into that and, and have that expectation put on a player, but I think Freddie Freeman's proven it now that he is one of the best hitters in the National League and one of the best players in baseball, and I think the Braves would like to keep that around for quite some time and just expect him to keep doing the things that Freddie Freeman does again in 2021. I don't think the contract situation is going to be a distraction. I think they're going to work this out. I'd, I'd kind of be surprised if Freddie Freeman ended up in free agency before he re-signed with the Braves. 
We haven't really talked much about Acuna yet, and it seems almost as if Acuna has been a bit overshadowed, maybe by all the attention that Fernando Tatis and Juan Soto have gotten lately. That triumvirate is often linked together, and it's really hard to rank them. They're all amazing. But I wonder whether we will see Acuna be as much of a, a speed and power threat as he has been early in his career, making the run at 40 40. That's something that often, when a hitter is as talented as he is and has as much power as he is, that just doesn't last very long, you know, whether it's because they slow down a little or mm-hmm. just because. They're the slugger and you don't want to risk them and have them, you know, break a finger or something and be out of your lineup. So do you think that was the last run we will see Acuna make at 40-40? I mean, the power's not in question, I don't think, but the speed component of it, do you think that will still be present this season? I really do. And I feel like it's something that he wants, not above the, the goals that he has of helping the team win and certainly not at the risk of injury. I mean, things can happen even when you try to take some of the risk off the table. So I guess it's possible that he could stop running as much as he has. But I felt like last year, as a lot of people looked at it, he did miss some time uh, dealing with, I believe it was a little bit of a, a wrist ailment that wasn't anything major, but it, it caused him to end up on the injured list for a little while. But he had a 400 plus on base last year. I think he's going to continue to find his way on base. And when he does and is not you know, circling the bases, as he's known to do quite a few times, I think the stolen bases are going to be there. He's a dynamic runner. I think he's been the fastest member of the Atlanta Braves in, in terms of all the sprint speeds and things that you look at. That That's very much still there. It hasn't changed much since his rookie year of 2018. And he actually dropped a little bit of weight this year. I think he was carrying around maybe a little bit more muscle last year, kind of bulked up some to go after that 40 home run season again. But he worked hard in the offseason. I saw the videos on his Instagram story on an almost daily basis of what he was going through. And uh, for for you or I, that might have felt like torture, but for him, you know, that was just another day to get ready for the season. And I think that 40-40 year is still out there for him. I think it's still a goal that he has in mind, and I think that he has the talent and, and the the concentration factor that you need to really hone in on a goal like that, but also the aptitude for the game and, and what is being required of you on a night-in, night-out basis. I don't think that's going to overshadow where his focus is when it comes to to winning and doing all the things you need to do. This is just... It's a generational talent, along with Tatis and Juan Soto as well. It's a fun time, I think, when you start looking at the young stars in the game of baseball right now. And those three, I hope we're talking about them in any order for the next 10, 15 years. The team has had a couple of notable partnerships emerge over the offseason, seemingly trying to engage different indigenous groups and other social justice groups to make that part of their public-facing platform. But that often stands in sharp contrast with their name. Unlike Cleveland's team, they have not initiated a renaming process. But I'm curious if sort of the last year has shifted, at least as far as you've been able to tell, some of the internal thinking about Atlanta's name and some of the fan practices that they've you know made part of their tradition over the over the decades they're obviously going to be welcoming fans back at least um, to some degree this season so I'm curious where the organization sits in terms of sort of its its process if there might be you know a an announcement on the horizon in the next couple of years of them sort of rethinking Braves as a moniker and some of their their traditions in the ballpark as well I definitely think traditions in the ballpark, and particularly the, I think the elephant in the room, really going back to the NLDS in 2019, I think that the Tomahawk Chop has probably seen its last days as anything that was going to be 
initiated as part of the game day entertainment. I mean, you can't stop people from doing it clearly if they decide they want to get a chant going and things like that in any sporting event. It kind of is what it is there. But I think that we saw a year ago with no fans in the stands for the 30 games that they played at Truist Park, the chop was not played. And I don't anticipate it coming back and being a feature part of game day entertainment going forward. Now, does that say anything larger about how much they might use the Tomahawk itself as part of uh, the Braves overall, you know, main logo that's across the chest of the uniform? I don't really know. I'm not sure about that. They went away from it in the 80s for a long period of time before bringing it back in 1987. So it's not without precedent, I guess, is what I'm saying there. Um, It really throughout the, the 70s and all the way into the middle 80s, they went away from the Tomahawk for quite some time. So they could do it. Whether or not they will, I'd I'd be interested to see. I think that that's a very real possibility. But in terms of a full-on name change at this time, and I have no insight from inside the organization whatsoever, but my general read is that they are hesitant to go down that road, at least not yet. Could they at some point rethink it? I, I guess that they certainly could. I do think that they are trying to, as you mentioned, uh, build some partnerships and make sure that in the usage of this name, as it has been for decades and decades for the franchise, that they are doing so in in the best possible way that they can to you know shine a positive light and be a positive partner and not be part of negative stereotypes and things that for some other clubs, you know, there are some some there are negative aspects of that that became part of the culture for those clubs. And you know, as we continue to grow and evolve as a as a human race and rethink things, you know, these are questions we need to ask ourselves. These are discussions we need to have, and I think that the Braves will. To, to whatever degree, they'll have that discussion. But as far as a timeline for any potential change, I haven't really heard any rumblings of that. And I would imagine that it's probably a long ways off if, in fact, that's something that does happen. Atlanta Hammers, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're saying it. I just, I, I mean, I get that. And, and I, I love the T-shirts and things that people are doing, the logos. But I just don't know if I love that name. But it may just be from spending my entire life calling them one thing and, and needing to <laughs> rethink what the next thing would be. I don't know what the answer is. And hey, Cleveland Spiders, I've, I've, I've always thought that would be fun to go back to. I don't know that they're going to go that route. Another source of some controversy surrounding the organization in recent years has been public funding of ballparks, both at the big league level and throughout the minor leagues. And there is a study that came out, I think, last week by the economist J.C. Bradbury, who is also a Braves fan and he has often written about public funding of parks, and according to the study, it suggested that added tax revenue in Cobb County have not covered the public subsidies that fund the stadium, which was sort of the concern going into that. Is the county pleased, displeased with how things have worked out so far? I mean, do they feel like they got hoodwinked, or do they feel like they're happy with how that worked out? I feel like a lot of people feel different ways about it from working in baseball, from growing up a Braves fan. And I live in Cobb County. You know, I, I I like having the Braves right as part of our community. I cannot speak for everybody. I know people that don't agree with it whatsoever. People that were unhappy that they moved outside of Atlanta. And of course, the whole tax situation and and the way that that deal came together was the source of much consternation. And I imagine will remain that way for years to come. But I don't know if, you know, in year four of a stadium, that you can really, you know, call it. This is obviously a long-term investment. So I think it's something that you have to reevaluate over time. I'm sure there's a lot of merit to that study. I've not delved into a lot of it. I did read a story uh, that popped up in my timeline on Twitter uh, yesterday. But, you know, my opinions have, have been anchored in the fact that I'm not an economist, number one. I am a Cobb County taxpayer, and I do like having the Braves here. And that may be a super simplistic way of looking at it. 
but for things of that nature, I, I'm I'm not the most qualified to to speak on it, other than you know what my personal preference is, and that's a, a much. Uh, I think that it adds a lot to the community. I, I really do. But different people value things at a different uh, level. And you could make a lot of different cases for what our tax money should and should not be paid for on both a local level and probably a federal level as well. So one more on-field question. I wanted to ask about the catcher spot where Tyler Flowers has not been brought back. And it looks like Travis Darneau, who had a, a really excellent year last year, will be backed up by William Contreras. So what do you see the time split being there? Darno kind of broke out. I mean, he's uh, another guy who has had issues staying healthy, but he was healthy and good last year. Mm-hmm. So what are the odds that uh, he can keep up both of those things in 2021? And then, you know, if he doesn't, how well positioned is Contreras to step in? I think that they're going to lean on him for... 70, 75% of the starts this year, I would foresee if Darno's healthy, that he's going to start 120 ball games would be what they're looking at. I was a little surprised that they didn't bring back Flowers for one more year, just because mm-hmm. Contreras and Langoliers were both guys that had not even reached AAA. And Shea Langoliers being their first round pick a couple of years ago, he's a guy that I think could be the future behind the plate as well. So they got two exciting young catching prospects, but there's a good possibility that both Contreras and Langoliers end up at the alternate site, and they decide to go with Alex Jackson as the catcher, the backup catcher, and see what that does in the month of April, May, and give those guys some time to continue to work. And I don't know what's best for young players in some cases when, if there's nothing left to prove in the minors, and they just need to come up, and if they're a backup, they're a backup. I I understand that. If there are at-bats to be had in the minors, and they haven't really checked all the boxes offensively, which I don't know that Contreras has, at least to this point. The profile is exciting, but it would be nice to see, you know, 60, 75 games at AAA to know that, you know, he's kind of graduated to that level and the consistency could be there to take over. But sometimes you got to throw guys out there, give them the opportunity, much like with Pache, you know, find out what you have, you know, all the tools that he has, see if he's able to put it together. But with Darno getting the bulk of the time, I don't know if it means more for Contreras or any young catcher to sit behind him or to play more in the minor leagues and allow there to be a Tyler Flowers or some other veteran catcher that they could pick up before the end of spring training that ends up being your plan B behind the plate, having that veteran around. I know there's a lot of value in that, especially as far as catchers are concerned, but I would love to see Contreras get a lot of playing time to really find out what they've got there. He showed a lot, I think, last year, and he kind of got thrown into the fire because at some point, both Darno and Flowers ended up having to be away from the team because of a COVID scare. So you had to go with your minor league guys, your young guys, and give them a shot. And I think he made the most of that, turned a lot of heads, made a really great impression. Looking forward to seeing how they deploy him this year. So we've talked about how fans reacted to the projections and sort of your expectations. I'm curious how the team sees itself in the division. I imagine that they uh, take issue with our projections and see themselves as as very much in it for a division crown. How aggressive do you think they might be as we look ahead a couple months to the trade deadline if they find themselves sort of in second place looking up at the Mets? I think that they're going to be highly motivated, Alex Anthopoulos, to improve the club. And I think that this is a Braves team that outside of even what you see with projections, I don't know that the players, that it really hits them the same way as it hits the fans. It seems to hit the fans right in the feelings if you're projected to not be as good as you think that they should be. But, you know, nobody likes being looked over. And I think that the Braves might have been a little bit looked past in 2018. They surprised some people. Then they did it again in 2019. And then last year, 
they made it three in a row, and the rest of the division really underperformed. It was a strange year, but this is a it looks like anyway. I'll say it looks like a different Mets team. I'm not sure that the Phillies have have done enough to really push themselves up the standings. We'll see if the Washington club is able to bounce back from a really bad 2020 for them. Uh, and then the Marlins, they ended up being another club out of the division that made the playoffs. So I know that the Braves, and this starts with you know Brian Snitker, Freddie Freeman, anybody that we've talked to in the early portion of spring training has said, this is a tough division and we're not taking anything for granted. So I don't think they're going to rest on those three division titles and be offended by anybody's projections of what this club might be. They just got to go out there and prove it. And they've been doing that for three years. And I think that's the mindset they're going to take as they move on into 2021 and beyond. All right. So you've got the Pakoda projection. You've got the Fangrass projection. Now you get the Grant McCauley projection. How many games do you think the Braves will win in 2021? I think the Braves are a 94-win team this year. That's kind of what I've honed in on. I feel like their pitching is much stronger in the rotation. I feel like the bullpen still has a lot of, of key arms that they need, even losing a couple of veterans. And I like what this lineup did last year. And I think they're going to be able to score runs and, and score a lot of runs at that if things go well. So I think they're a 94-win team. I think that they win the division. They may be a couple above, a couple below. But I'm not sure if any team in the division, save maybe the Mets, did enough in the offseason to push themselves into the conversation as well. So it kind of feels like a two-team race. And I'll, I'll go with the Braves. All right. Well, you can find Grant McCauley on Twitter at his name, Grant McCauley. You can hear him on 680 The Fan. You can find him on the From the Diamond podcast at fromthediamond.com and everywhere else you find podcasts. And if this was not an in-depth enough Braves preview for you, the last three episodes of that podcast have been devoted to specific aspects of the Braves in 2021. So you can check that out. Grant, thank you as always. You got it. And I got three more parts of that preview series coming soon. So there'll be a lot of discussion as we lead up to opening day. I hope to have covered everything I possibly can. But thank you so much for having me. I look forward to this every year and uh, I really appreciate it. All right. We will be right back with Ryan Divish to talk about the Mariners. All right, we are back and ready to talk about the Seattle Mariners, and we are joined by Ryan Divish, who covers the Mariners for the Seattle Times. Hello, Ryan. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So before we move on, shall we try to put the whole Kevin Mather mess behind us as the Mariners are currently trying to do? One thing I wonder is how disruptive it is to have your president and CEO, longtime president and CEO, suddenly resign in disgrace. What are the lingering after effects of that just in terms of how the Mariners do business, restoring relationships that he managed to, you know, all the bridges that he set on fire in one conversation? What are sort of the lingering relics of that scandal? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Like from a baseball baseball player standpoint, yeah, Marco Gonzalez wears his very boring shirt because you know Mather called him very boring, and company made shirts that said very boring. So Marco wears that anytime he's on camera for his media zooms, and several other players wear it. I haven't seen the the Julio shirt that said, and I took offense to that. There's you know there's several shirts that have been made, but I think. 
and you guys know this, baseball players have a unique ability to compartmentalize things, emotions, and move forward very quickly, like forget about a day. You know, for me, something goes wrong. I'm irritated and angry for three or four days usually, but baseball players just move forward. You know, they, they can wash a day away. And I think for a lot of them, they were able to do that. Yeah, in the moment. And when it first came out, they were all offended. I mean, the list was very long and extensive of all the people he he said something derogatory about. But I, I think like once they got back into working and, and games and games started and all that stuff, then it, it just became kind of, all right, it happened. Let's move forward. You know, I, I don't I, like as Kyle Seager said, he's not the first person to call me overpaid. You know, and and. Like, you know, I think for Julio, it was a little more personal because it's something that he takes great pride in uh, talking about his English. But for the most part, I, I thought, you know, that they, they've all kind of moved past this. And, and, and for a lot of them in that way, Kevin Mather was a non-entity to them in the sense that, yeah, they knew who he was and they talked to him. And they'd have small talk, but he's not in the clubhouse every day and they don't see him every day and they don't interact with him. I do think, though, that from that standpoint – there is a divide between players and the front office usually, and there's uh, a wariness I think players have about the front office and their beliefs about how they are treated or what is expected of them. And Kevin Mather just kind of cemented that belief for a lot of the Mariners, you know, and and I don't and I think a lot of them don't think that he came up with this some of this stuff on his own. That some of it was especially the service time stuff was a product of what Jerry Depoto has taught as well. So I think in that regard. That still lingers. And just the organization as a whole, look, we all know that service time manipulation happens. We all know that ownership groups and front office folks, you know, the the mass of the middle-aged white men that you see in Major League Baseball, they all look at players more as – they all look at it from a business standpoint and players are commodities or not people. You know, there is a, there is a separation, I think, uh, in that. And the Mariners – provided a name and a face for it and and it's on their franchise now and they have a heavy level of scrutiny with everything they do when it comes to Jerry Kelnick and and the other guys about service time and how they handle free agency I mean like there's so much that he said that that was like not enlightening but just like reaffirming of how of how ownership groups can think about these things like from the the service time or the, even the manipulation of the free agent market trying to get free agents to come hat in hand as he said like all that stuff we kind of knew but you just you never thought anybody would be dumb enough to say it on a zoom call to a bunch of crazy rotarians at a breakfast meeting you brought up kelnick and you know we i think we're all going to be watching his spring very closely regardless of mather's remarks because he's part of this exciting young group that's supposed to come up and finally help the mariners end their playoff drought and then he tweaked his knee and i know he has gotten into some game action i'm curious just from a baseball perspective both where he is in terms of his health and then what you think the chances are of him making the opening day roster and sort of meriting that especially given that we're going to see a delay in the AAA season. Sort of where do you think he's going to shake out when this is all said and done? I don't think he's going to make the opening day roster. You're right in the sense that the service time thing with, with Jared Kelnick was going to linger before Kevin Mather ever said a word. It was going to be a focal point. It was always going to be there looming because of some stuff he said last year at the alternate training site and stuff his agent has said to writers and, and kind of the Mariners handling of it all. 
you know, when he suffered the knee injury, I thought he was out two to three weeks. That's kind of what you read with an adductor strain. He, of course, messages and says, I'll be back in seven days. And he felt like he should have been back in seven days, but the Mariners wouldn't clear him. He, you know, in talking with him, he said, I've been 100% for like three or four days now. They won't let me play. And then he finally got back into a game last night, got two at-bats. You know, he looks fine from a physical standpoint. But now, like, you know, there's, what, 10 games left, I think, nine games left. And they're not going to play him every day. And they've got to play other players. So, I mean, I just don't see how they're going to have him make the team. He hasn't had the requisite amount of bats to kind of provide some reassurance that he could handle being on the opening day roster. And I guess, you know, for the Mariners, if they're that concerned about service time, and apparently they are, in a way, the injury was fortunate for him. It allowed them some breathing room to not to not have to go down that road about whether he should make the team or not. Because, like in, in talking with him, nothing, everything that they were going to do with that kid leading up to this to the opening day, had he stayed healthy, was going to be under scrutiny. Why are they doing this? Are they not playing him in Cactus League games enough to give him a fair chance to prove that he deserves to be on the team? Are they, if they put him on the team, are they just doing that to placate the things that Kevin Mather said? So. It was just going to be a no-win situation for them, and then Kelnick gets hurt, and that's the big rub of it all, too. Like they don't have a, a way for him to get the games and the development, you know, that he wants. They've talked about the alternate training site not really providing a lot of development. You're playing some inner squad. It's funny I haven't really reported this because I just, you know, don't have. I mean, I don't even know if it's a real story per se, but the Mariners, Jerry, De, Jerry Depoto specifically, was trying to put together a co-op league for this month of the season, this month coming up uh, to play some of the top prospects and pe- and players that were invited to big league camp that maybe weren't going to the alternate training site, but you know, they want them to play games four or five days a week. And so he's trying to put together this co-op league of teams down here, you know, probably combine the team's complexes and, and play games five days a week to get real games in against higher level competition. And then he was trying to get all that, you know, fields, umpires and everything. But the problem was that I think one of the reasons it didn't come together is the, um, the players union had a problem because some of those guys would have been on the 40 man roster and they're looking around going, I don't know if this is what you really want to do here. Uh, and how, like if a guy were injured playing in that league. So, I assume there'll be minor league spring training games. I don't know when they're going to start, when when the players report. So for somebody like Kelnick, I wouldn't think that they're going to send him to the alternate training site. They'll leave him down here and have him play in the minor league games that are down here instead of trying to play rando sim games every so often when pitchers need their work. It's it's really a, an interesting situation for him and for Logan Gilbert and a lot of these top prospects, Julio Rodriguez, you know, they're going to be essentially down at spring training for like 12 weeks or something like that because there is no minor league season to start with. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Gilbert because, you know, Kelnick sort of became the face of the service time component of Mather's remarks. But, you know, it was reported that Gilbert was also offered a, a long term deal that he declined. And he, of course, obviously stayed at the alternate site uh, with along with Kelnick all of last year. I'm curious sort of what you view as his likely timeline to the big leagues? I I mean, I would assume maybe June 1st. You know, had there been a AAA season starting on on April 6th or whatever it was supposed to start, I think maybe you could have said May 1st or middle of May. But I think June 1st. And and that's also going to be predicated on how the pitchers on the big league staff uh, pitch. They have a six-man rotation. You know, I can't imagine all six are going to be pitching well at one time or stay healthy at all times. But 
I think that'll be a question as well as when he might make his debut is if somebody were to get hurt or really struggled. But yeah, I mean, like we saw him pitch against the Angels down here and then we haven't seen him in a game again because once that the minor league season was delayed, the Mariners had to reassess their pitching plan for all these guys that were going to go to AAA and how they're going to keep them ready. They don't want them at five and six innings in April and then have to slow back down at an inter- at the alternate training site. So they had to reassess how they're going to do the pitching plans for a lot of these guys and build them up for the minor league season to start, which they hope is on May 6th instead of April 6th. And so that's like, it's just a, it's a, it was so MLB to, to announce that like as late as it was like it. And, and you're going to see more stuff like this because MLB controls minor league baseball now that they can just impose their will on everything. But I, I just felt like in talking with a lot of developmental people that it just threw such a wrench in their plans. Like there was obviously doubt that that they were going to be able to maybe play the season as is or whatever. But like the way they did it and how they did it and how late it was, it it, it caused a lot of chaos for teams in trying to figure out what they're going to do moving forward. Yeah, and I wanted to ask whether you think what happened last year was a bigger blow to the Mariners than to most teams just because of where they are in their rebuild or step back or reimagining or whatever Jerry DePoto is currently calling it. Was that a a bigger hurdle for them just because it is so important for them to get a lot of those young players playing time? And what did they do to try to get around that being a a long-term setback? Yeah, I think it does. You can't replace games. And what's crazy is like the circumstances of this Kelnick deal and the and the service time manipulation complaints. Look, if if there is no pandemic last year, Jerry Jerry Kelnick goes to Double A. He probably plays there to till June first if he plays well. He's called up to Triple A. He probably plays there till you know August first. Maybe he gets a call up last year. Maybe he doesn't. But like you know, given his skill set and kind of the the way he approaches things, it wouldn't have been impossible that if he had a full minor league season for him to climb two rungs because he did it the year before. And gr- granted, it would have been harder at the Triple A level. But you know, if he does all those things, even if he doesn't make it to the big leagues last year. But he does, he goes from double A to triple A, puts up numbers, produces, there's a progression. Then you come into this spring and they say, well, you know, maybe he competes for a spot. Maybe he's there in a month. You don't have that whole accusatory tone. But when you have the pandemic and it shuts down and they bring, they go back to summer camp and they have four outfielders on the 40 man roster and they put two outfielders on the active roster to start the season and they're playing utility guys on the corners and they pick up Phil Irvin and, and that's what made it look worse because Kellenic was so good and he did so much work in that shutdown that he came back looking better than almost every outfielder they had other than Kyle Lewis. But yeah, like all those circumstances led to that. And like with Julio Rodriguez, you know, he he lost an entire season. I mean, he's he has yet to play a full like 140 game minor league season because his first year he, he broke his wrist. He got hit by a pitch and he missed a month and a half. So like you know, Julio probably goes to high A, maybe he gets to double A last year. Like the progression of where those guys are in terms of climbing the ladder, seeing advanced level competition, it, it's been delayed. And and you can try and force it by doing these inter-squad games or sending Julio to the, the DR to play. But it's it's a fine line you walk when you try and push development at a rate that isn't typical. You know, some kids can handle it, some can't. Some guys are never recover from it. I don't think the Mariners truly know. And it's the same with their pitching staff. George Kirby, 
Emerson Hancock, two of their best pitching prospects, did not throw in games last year. George Kirby, I think, threw two innings of inner squad scrimmages, or maybe three. Hancock had some shoulder fatigue in a bullpen, so they shut him down. He never pitched in the instructional league. He didn't pitch. I mean, like, he barely pitched at Georgia. So it's like all those guys, you know, they're pitching – is, is a strength. You've got Hancock, Gilbert, Kirby, Brandon Williams, and all these prospects. None of them got those innings to build up, to build strength, to work on some of the stuff they needed to. So like when the Mariners talk about this step back coming to fruition, only Gilbert of those prospects is ready to assume a spot at the big league level. Those other guys are like two years away at the earliest. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Julio because, you know, his, as you noted, his year was disrupted. He also, he suffered another wrist injury. I watched him when he took at-bats and lead him and like, he seemed to really struggle with breaking ball recognition. So I'm curious, I, I know that he is not someone we expect to be up this year, but I'm curious sort of how he looked, has looked to you so far in spring and if you see him making strides even from that lead him showing, because it was... It was a little concerning. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought Julio called it eye-opening, the Lidom playing there. Just like the intensity level of it all. Like, you know, it isn't about development. It's about winning that night. And right. what happened, what he found out is because it was about winning, he wasn't going to get to play very much because he wasn't very good. You know, and that's one of the reasons I think why he left because I think he knew that, you know, staying there at Lidom and, and maybe playing once a week wasn't going to get him better. And trying to take care of some of the stuff that have been exposed while playing against guys that are older and more experienced. Uh, I, I was, I'm very impressed with what he's done. He, he, when he got back, he went to Tampa and there's a group of guys under his agency. They went to this workout facility and they basically just kind of had their little bubble in Tampa or his like hotel across the street from the, uh, from where our apartment, wherever they stay across the street from the facility, they would go in there five to six hours a day. They would work out, do speed training, agility work during the mornings, lifting, and then they'd hit for hours in the afternoon. And, you know, Julio came back and he looked like a different guy. Like he was kind of trending towards that bulkier, you know, slugger type for a while. You know, you're a kid, you eat what you want, do all that stuff. And plus you lift, you just kind of get big and bulky and you're really heavy in the legs and butt area too. And this year he came back and you're like, wow, I mean, he looks different. Like, and I'm not going to do the best shape of his life thing. I know you guys discuss my, 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 uh, <laughs> storyline bingo. We stood up for you. I know it's fine. I mean, well, if you, that's the best, that's the only way you can use the cliches is if you make fun of them or address yep. that they are cliches. But yeah, so like he just kind of like, I think he still weighs the same. He might be five, 10 pounds less, but he, he reshaped his body and you could just see how he moves. Like he, he can run, he can really run and he just moves a little bit more free. And we've noticed that kind of difference in just the way he moves at the, at the plate in the field. But also I think like being humbled a little bit and understanding that like you're just not going to get fastballs. When people know who you are, you're just not going to get what you want. I think that that really forced him to reassess how he wanted to hit. And, and we've seen it here in the last couple of weeks. You know, the homer the other day was just absurd. But, like, you could see it coming. Like, he was getting his timing down. He was figuring it out. He kind of understood what, what pitchers were trying to do to him. And so he started getting himself into these good fastball counts and getting fastballs and hitting them hard. But, I mean, like, you know, you go 115 to the opposite field on a 98-mile-per-hour fastball – 
and it goes 437 feet. That's just not something you can do. And like, I, I know you guys have seen the video probably of it, but that thing came off the bat and it was about 15 to 20 feet off the ground when it started. And it just kept climbing and it had so much yeah. backspin. It just kept rising. It was like, and I wrote this, it was like what those home runs that Nelson Cruz would hit, you know, where he just drops the bat head barrel. It hits with so, he hits it so hard, it has so much backspin. It just kind of climbs. And that's what he did. And this is a kid 19 years old doing that. And there are players that work their entire lives that can never do that. So I think, you know, in that regard, he's taken a step because all the stuff he did to the training, the Mariners asked him, you know, you got to do this, this, and this. But he took all this, he took it to another level. He did it all on his own. He went to his agent and said, I want to do these things. How do I do this? And they set him up. And he's just kind of figured out, this is what I need to do moving forward. I will always do this. I can never not do this. And there are players in their 30s that never figured that out. I mean, Felix Hernandez never figured that out when he was with the Mariners, that you had to do more every year to stay at the level you wanted. And uh, I think that's a good sign. I think he'll still probably go to high A, I would think, to start. But, I mean, maybe they try and expedite it and send him to double A. But I think sending him to high A for at least – April and May would be ideal, or not April, but May and June would probably be ideal for him. So we should probably talk about some guys who've been in the big leagues, starting with Kyle Lewis, who was a big bright spot for the Mariners in 2020, Rookie of the Year. And because he hates happiness and fun, Dan Zimborski included Kyle Lewis on his list of bust candidates for 2021, citing his poor contact rate and swing decisions and the way his offense tailed off later last season. So is that a concern or is it just going to be smooth sailing, rookie of the year, following up with a, a nice sophomore season? I like Dan, but he's a cat guy over a dog guy. I just can't. I can't <laughs> hang with that. All right. He's a great he's, – he's, he's, I find him entertaining. But, yeah, cat guy, no. Dog guy, yes. <laughs> I think it's it's not unfair to say it. If you look at Kyle's – I think his last 20 games, there were, there were swing and miss issues. And if you look at even the last 10 games of his, his September call-up the year before, there were swing and miss issues. He – you know, he works very hard at, at being better on breaking pitches, recognizing breaking pitches. I think he knows that's where he's going to get attacked. But I, I do think that like his overall skill set and just kind of the raw ability, you're starting to see that he, he can adjust quickly. And again, he's another one of those guys that's like he has no life other than working out. I mean, he got home after a rookie of the year campaign and was back in the gym working on running and speed work and agility, I think two and a half weeks after the season ended three, he said he just couldn't take not doing it, you know, incorporated his hitting probably two and a half, three weeks later. I think because he realizes, you know, when you, when you win the award and you have the, all these things and you have that success that it's going to be much more difficult the next year. And I think he realizes that now, whether or not he can, you know, offset that and adjust to the adjustments, it'll be a big, big sign. But I, I think every year his swing has gotten a little cleaner and a little shorter and a little bit better about driving the balls to right center. And I think again, like with Julio guys that can naturally drive the ball that way, I think you're in a better position to hit the off speed stuff because you'll, you'll let the ball travel longer anyways. And we'll see. It's, it's kind of crazy. Like I know my buddy Adam was filling in for me and he wrote a story just kind of about how the fact is that like Kyle Lewis is the reigning rookie of the year. And we barely talked about him all spring. I mean, we just haven't because like the Kelnick, Julio, Mather, other stuff, you know, and he just kind of quietly go about his business. But I think also 
just having a better lineup around him, having Mitch Haniger, having Seager, having Ty France, even Tom Murphy, I think that'll help him a little bit as well. Because last year he drew a lot of attention late in the year and they just weren't going to give in and give him anything he could drive. And I, there were times where he understood he needed to take the walk. And I think there were times where he got frustrated and said, no, I need to hit. I need to hit for us to win. And that's what got him into trouble. One guy who did not hit well, really it any point last year was Evan White. I I don't want to linger too long on the batting line. He did pick up a gold glove for his superlative defense, so he had that, but he posted a 66 WRC plus, and while we won't make too much of spring training stats, in 33 plate appearances, he is OPSing 606. He has a 185 batting average, so I think a lot clearly went wrong. I'm curious what adjustments Evan White plans on making this year and sort of if you've seen any change that maybe isn't showing up in his spring line so far, but is starting to perhaps pay dividends. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's interesting. He just kind of, he came in and he had a little different setup at the plate with his hand placement. I noticed he went back to his old way. And then service the other day just said that, like, Evan kind of just came to the coach and says, look, I like the swing that I have. I don't want to tinker with it. He said, I think my bigger issue is my decisions and, and how I handle my at-bats and, and taking failure to the next at-bat and all this other stuff. And so he was more concerned about his approach. And maybe that's the best way because, you know, he hit at the other levels. It's not a pretty swing. It's it's kind of weird, and I still think there should be some work done to it. But his last few games when he's kind of went back to what he's done, he, he's been better. He, he have two hits against Texas the other night. He hit a grand slam last night. And there was a game, a sim game, about a week ago where he had, I think, three or four hits. And two of them were off Marco Gonzalez. One was a homer and one was a double off the wall in center. And then he hit another double opposite field off of Kendall Graveman. So they were real guys. You know, again, it's sim game. But I think it's better. The strikeout percentage isn't as bad this spring. I mean, last year it was past Zanino. I mean, even Mike Zanino wasn't 40%. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just think he, last year he got overwhelmed. It snowballed and he couldn't handle it. And that's part of the problem when you jump a kid from double A to the big leagues and not have a minor league season to send him down. I mean, like in any other season, you know, he goes 0 for 26, you're sending him to triple A for 10 days to clear his head. They didn't have that. They, you know, right. the alternate training site didn't offer that. So he just had to wear it. And I think when you, in a 60 game season, you just keep looking up and it doesn't matter what stat you look at none of the stats he looked at that he could see were good i mean like the uh the rest of it like the uh the hard hit ball stats and all that i mean that you know they they know about them but that's not what they see on the board and that's not what they take home at night so i think it's better i don't think it can get worse i think he's got a better mindset about what he wants to do at the plate so you know Will he be a 300 hitter? No, but I think they'll take 250 at this point. If they can get him to 250, it's kind of like the Zanino thing, at least right now. And I think he'll be a better contact guy than Zanino because he always has been. Zanino had swing and miss stuff even when he's at Florida. But like, I think if they they feel like if they can get Evan White to 250, considering what his average exit velocity was last year and his barrel percentage and stuff like that, if they get him to 250, they feel like that's 20 home runs, 20 doubles area, you know, because he just hits the ball that hard. One thing that might help the lineup is the return of two players who missed all of 2020, Mitch Hanniger and Tom Murphy. So with Hanniger, is he healthy? How has he been? How does he feel? Are they hoping he can go back to his pre-injury rates? And then Murphy, of course, we saw having a pretty huge 76 games for the 2019 Mariners before he broke his foot. So how has he looked as well? You know, it's weird. I haven't seen Hanniger you know, healthy and so long. I forgot like just how talented he was. 
and like the amount of torque and violence that he swings with and just what he does when it, when he's right. We've seen it down here. Like he, he looks to be swinging better than he ever has, you know? And again, that's partially because I mean, for most of Mitch Hanniger's career, with the exception of the 2018 season, he's been banged up in some way. And you know, the 2017 season, he tore one oblique and then restrained the other side, trying to come back too early. And then 2019, he had the worst injury that I can possibly imagine. And then had two subsequent injuries from that. But like, he's really good. Like he's really talented. He moves well on the field. He can run and, and just like his presence. Like I think they're going to bat him lead off to start the season. And he just, he's just really good. Like I, I forgot like, cause it's, you know, it's every, you forget how good these guys are, but that 2018 season, he was ridiculous. I like, I went back and looked at his numbers again, just kind of like glancing. I was like, wow. And I mean, he even had a, a month where he tailed off and I was like, this is, this is really good. Now, I guess if he has that sort of rate in production, or is he going to be on the Mariners after midseason? I don't know. But yeah, he's he, he'll he be a huge difference maker for them. I, he won't play every day. Well, you get his bat in the lineup four days a week, five days a week. That's pretty dang good. Murphy hasn't looked as strong this spring. And I wonder, like so much of his success came against left-handed pitching. But again, what they were rolling out last year at catcher, I mean, Nola was great, but they only had him for half, and they didn't really have much else behind him. I mean, he's going to be an improvement. Actually, and Luis Torrens, the guy they got from from San Diego, can hit it a little bit. He doesn't catch real well, but he can hit a little bit. But Murphy, yeah, if he it can get even close to what he did a couple years ago, 2019, especially like if they find the right matchups for him, he can be very dangerous. I think another guy who had a really nice 2020, and we didn't end up talking about it all that much just because of how bad the the Mariners were overall, um, or were perceived to be overall, was Justice Sheffield, who I think, you know, when we maybe talked about him the the last time, there was still some concern that this would just like not play in a starting role. And he had trouble in 2019 and had to go back down to double A so that he could pitch with the non-rabbit ball. And then, you know, came up in 2020 and pitched to a mid-threes ERA and an even better FIP. So I know there were some changes in his pitch usage. I think he was using his sinker more last year than he had been. But what sort of helped him take the step forward and what are you expecting from him in 2021? Well, I think you mentioned it, the the sinker, the two-seamer. He, it's right about a year at this time. He implemented this, the two-seam fastball, I think, in his third Cactus League start. You know, he'd always been a four-seam guy, a big velocity guy, but his four-seam – didn't have great spin rate, didn't have a lot of ride to it, and he had no idea where it was going. And sometimes it would actually have weird action like a two-seamer. So they just kind of said, hey, you know, he'd been kind of fooling around with it in bullpens and, you know, playing catch and just seeing what it would do. And finally, they I, th- I think it was a game against the Rockies at Salt River. He just took it into the game and uh, used it as his only fastball. The two-seamer and then his, the good slider that he has and a little bit of a changeup. So now you're a year of doing that, and and what we've seen is that he can really command it a little bit better now. He looks like a guy that's thrown the sinker for a long time, you know, started at the front hip of hip of a hitter, let it leak back over the plate, some things like that, uh, control the run on it a little bit. And I think that was a huge difference because it's like, and it was just the mindset too for him. Like he went from being a thrower and a power guy to understanding that this isn't who he is anymore, particularly at the big league level. Yeah, you may be able to do that double A. Big league level, you're just, your stuff doesn't play like that. So he went into more of 
you know, I won't say Marco Gonzalez because, you know, Justice is thrown his two-seamer at 94. Marco's barely touching 89 at times. But, like, understanding that, you know, ground balls are a lot better than going full count and hoping to strike a guy out. And once he kind of commanded that and was able to get more consistent in the strike zone, you know, everything got a little bit better. You know, like if you think about it, if you're facing a right-hander and that two seams running away from you as a right-handed hitter, and then all of a sudden he can throw that slider at your back foot and it looks like, you know, it just falls out of there, that makes him really effective. The big thing for him besides that has been the change-up usage that he's thrown a lot this spring, and it's got pretty good action. I mean, I don't think it's going to be elite by any means, but it it's it's pretty effective. And so that, you know, he's got a three pitch mix and he's got better kind of confidence. I mean, like, yeah, I thought he was their second best pitcher last year. And, and, you know, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done in 30 starts. And that'll be the separator this year. But I, I do think like he comes into this year, like a whole different mindset and understanding who he is as a pitcher. And that's big. I mean, that's big for a guy going to second year is like understanding what works well for you at the big league level. And you're not experimenting anymore, but you have a plan of how you want to do things. And I do think having somebody like Marco and even now James Paxton, who are super meticulous in their preparation and their day, day of game preparation, how they go about scouting reports and stuff like that. I think that only helps chef because I think for a long, a lot of times, and he's admitted this, he just went by his talent. Like, you know, I just blow up by guys and he can't do that anymore. So he's starting to learn how to pitch. Another guy who had a pleasant surprise season last year is Dylan Moore. So what was the secret to his success? And also because he is a little older than the core that's coming in, he'll turn 29 in August. Is he someone Jerry might move or is he going to be part of the next good Mariners team? Yeah, it's really weird. Like I, I, they basically at the end of last season, you know, the year before they gave Shed Long the job with basically 35, 40 games of big league experience. And Shed played his way out of it in 2020. He was hurt. And then Dylan came on and played well. And now they're giving him the second base job. And that's also because they couldn't sign Colton Wong or Tommy Listella like they tried to. Who knew Tommy Listella was going to get three years? Yeah, with Dylan, he, he made some changes just about trying to keep the bat and the strike zone longer. And, you know, I don't – I mean – I was stunned at what he did last year, how hard he hit the ball, how much power he hit. He, he bulked up a little bit, but he had a lot of swings and misses the year before and looked overwhelmed at times, but he cleaned a lot of that up. Now, whether that carries over into, you know, 100 games, 150 games, we'll see. You know, that was a pretty small sample size because he got hurt too. And so he, I think he only had 45 games last year, 45, I think, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, he's the second baseman now. I don't know. I think, honestly – in a perfect situation, the Mariners are a better team if he's your utility guy. You know, if he's playing left field every so often when there's a lefty on the mound or if, you know, he's playing second base one day or something like that. But where they're at right now and with who they have on their roster and their organization, they're going to leave him at second base. And, you know, could that change a year from now when there's a better free agent class? Sure. But right now they're going to give him every opportunity because even if he does hit a lot, you know, and he hits well. Maybe he's not your second baseman next year, but given the way baseball is going, having a guy that is a utility guy, uh, like a Zobris that plays a lot, it can be pretty valuable. I'm hoping that you can help me make sense of Yusei Kikuchi's year because he had a strange one. His ERA did come down from his rough 2019 campaign, but I think that if if you want to tell a happy story about him, you're going to look to his FIP, but there's a pretty big gap between those two. He struck out more guys, but he also walked more guys. He did seem to control the home run a little bit. So 
how do you account for his 2020? And the answer might just be that it was 47 innings and the, the Mariners defense wasn't particularly stellar. And what are you expecting from him in 2021? I have no idea what to expect from them. And, and I, I know the Mariners think, you know, they've been optimistic. They've been optimistic the last few years. I don't think they really know either. They're, I mean, you just can't. The Yusei Kikuchi that came over that they signed and the guy that it's now is like completely different. You know, you overlay the mechanics and everything else. It's like the first year he, he comes over and he he doesn't, you know, it's it's a big adjustment. And, and his father died that year and he had his first child and all this stuff. And he wanted to play well and perform and and he was struggling with the idea of how much power the the lineups had and how the number 9 hitter could take him deep if he made a mistake and then just with his kind of mechanics and stuff his velocity would go back and forth one day be 94 and one day he'd be barely getting 90 on his fastball and he got kind of caught up in that and then also he just listened to all these coaches and all these different people giving him advice and he tried and implement it like they talked about Starts where he'd have one arm slot when he'd start working out before a game in the bullpen and he'd change his arm slot completely or he'd do things different or he's going to go with this leg kick that day. And he never – he kind of lost who he was as a pitcher. And so that off last offseason, he went to driveline. They shortened up his arm path, kind of cleaned up some stuff and came back. And, I mean, he had consistent velocity. It sat 95 and his that cutter slider thing they called it sat 91. And it stayed that way. Now, granted, it's, I think he made nine starts, but it, you know, that was encouraging and everything was coming out hard and it had movement. The problem was, is like he couldn't harness it. You know, that was he, the command wasn't there. I mean, if you look at his first strike percentage, I think it was like 48%, maybe, you know, and he just, it was full count. It was inefficient. And even if like the good starts he would have, there'd always be one inning where it'd be a 30 pitch inning where he'd lose something or lose the feel and he just couldn't get out of it. And, and like, so they think it's going to be better this year, but I mean, we haven't necessarily seen it. You know, the stuff is still there. It's still been 95, 96, you know, he's, he's changed up the curveball shape a little bit. So it's a little different. He's has a change up, but at the end of the day, like if you don't throw strikes enough, if you don't get ahead enough, it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you're going to be five innings at best. I mean, like it, it was amazing sometimes how fast he could get to 90 pitches in an outing. It would be three innings sometimes. And you're just like, you can't live like this. And what's weird is, is that they have this contract after this year, they have to make a decision on whether they want to exercise a four-year club option or turn it into a player option and he can opt out or be done after the 2022 season. And I don't even know, like if the guy goes 27 and four with a 2.5 ERA, does that make you feel better about guaranteeing him another four years at 50 some million? Maybe, but it's just like nothing we've seen now says he's going to be one way or the other. He's going to be really good or really bad. He just might be that guy that's super unpredictable. Uh, you know, you see those guys that stuff guys that, that have wandering command and one start, they'll look amazing. And the next start, they could look terrible. And, one start, they'll look good for three innings, and then two bad for two and come back for one. I mean, I think that's kind of where he's at. And unless we see something different, and I haven't really seen it this spring to sit there and say, oh, yeah, his command is, is pinpoint. I think that's where he's always going to be. Speaking of performance variations, last time MLB fans saw Chris Flexen pitching in this league, he had a seven-ish ERA over the course of three seasons, parts of three seasons with the Mets, but then he pitched quite well in Korea last season, and I assume that was partly the league change, but also some other changes that he made. So 
how did he remake himself there? And will that translate to the big leagues? Best shape of his life. That's how he did it. <laughs> uh-huh. 50 pounds. I mean, he lost 50 pounds. Is what Larry Stone talked to him. 50 pounds. That's a lot over a couple of years. And, you know, I'd, I'd take five. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think lost some weight. Just kind of reassessed how he did some stuff. The breaking ball is really good. Changed up some stuff with just like how he prepared. Oh, arm strengthening stuff. The velocity kicked back up. I watched him the other last night get hit around by the Angels pretty hard. He just didn't have very good fastball command. I think that's kind of what, you know, will be a separator. I don't know what he's going to be like. You know, he's looked good so far in spring training, but, you know, it, it again, like the difference in the KBO versus the AL West, I mean, you know, it, or even just anywhere in Major League Baseball, that especially in the American League, the number nine hitter, it, they'll light you up. And I think he just can't afford to make a lot of mistakes. Does he have enough command? Uh, did he refine enough command to be effective? You know, because I don't think he's going to overpower anybody. But the Mariners kind of believe in all the work he's done. And, and you know, it was a pretty, you know, team-friendly deal because that's all they could do this offseason. But I think, you know, he profiles as maybe a back-of-the-rotation starter. If, if he just stays healthy and gives you innings, I think you take that at this point, too. He's kind of a bridge guy to maybe when those other guys get there. I always think that J.P. Crawford is older than he is. He's only 26, and he had a gold glove year for the Mariners last year. The bat remains, you know, sort of anemic, but but serviceable. I'm curious if he is someone who the team is thinking about as being part of this long-term core, or if he's someone who might be on the move uh, if he has a, a another good season. Well, I, yeah, I guess it'd be maybe what the the shortstop class looks like, you know, in the next few months, you know, if, if Lindor sign, I not that I think the Mariners could get Lindor, but you know, Trevor story, these guys, what, what happens there? Do they, they make a run at one of those guys for offensive improvement over that? I mean, I think a lot of what we see from JP or about JP's future will be dependent on this year. You know, like, yeah, he's great defensively, but is he going to be something more than two twenty? 340 slash, you know, and, you know, not, I mean, I think his slugging was only 340 last year. Like, I, they loved the fact that he was competitive and he was willing to, to work counts and try and take some walks, but he just goes in and spells where it just contact's not there. And when it is there, it's not very hard. Um, he's kind of tinkered with his swing a lot. Uh, and, and I guess that's, I guess that's what your value, what the value of the position is. And maybe what the rest of your lo- your roster looks like. Like if yeah, if if you're getting production from your second baseman, like power production, and you're getting run production from there, and and first base and other places, then maybe you overlook the fact that your shortstop is defense first, maybe defense only. But like, I think like for them, if if JP even got to be like Andrelton Simmons level offense, they they'd be happy. But they, you know, it just they haven't seen it. Like, and I don't know if they know that it's going to be there or not. And yeah, because you love the defense, and I mean, Meg, you know this. Other than Brendan Ryan, it's been god rough. awful. Oh, yeah, it's been rough. <laughs> god awful. Oh, you know, I mean, I had to watch twenty-five games of Tim Beckham at shortstop. You know, with Ryan yep. Healy, with Ryan Healy playing third base, and Jay Bruce at first base. Poor D Gordon, he was like running all over the field. Goes, I'll catch that one. He was like going Kelly Leak on the infield because like nobody could catch anything. But yeah, I. I think they're going to give him every opportunity to try and show that he can be capable. And I guess that's what, you know, again, like if 
a year from now and you have an outfield with Kelnick, Lewis, and Julio or two years from now and or Hanniger, even like at the end of this year, you'll have Kelnick, uh, Lewis, and Hanniger, you know, and, and you're getting production from Seager at third for this year and, and who knows the first base. But if you're getting production from other places, you're willing to overlook maybe that you're not getting what you typically would expect from shortstop and, and you're overlooking it because you're getting plus plus defense. But the Mariners don't have that lineup right now. And so it's a little bit more glaring, you know, and, and I don't think Corey Seager would sign with the Seattle Mariners unless they offered him a gajillion dollars. Trevor Story might, but I, I don't know that Carlos Correa is leaving the Astros. So it's like, yeah, there's all these great shortstops out there, but I mean, how does it fit with the Mariners? And so maybe JP is your guy moving forward because Noel V. Marte, their next best shortstop is 19 years old and he profiles more as a third baseman than a shortstop. Another thing that was hard to watch was the Mariners' bullpen last year. Just Ugh. a total tire fire. I, mean, I know the, the Phillies' bullpen got all the attention for being terrible, but it was the Mariners who had the worst bullpen FIP in baseball. So <laughs> Ken Giles not going to pitch this year, not until next year. So did they do enough to fix this? I mean, maybe just regression fixes it to some extent when it's that bad. But it's one thing to be a losing team, and it's another thing to be a losing team with a terrible bullpen. That's just something no one should have to suffer through. I don't remember what GM it was. It might have been like Theo Epstein or somebody who said that like the easiest way to tank for a season is just put together a bad bullpen. I mean, like, and, and the Mariners, like, they just rolled out kids and retreads and stuff last year. They're trying to find, and they've been doing it for two years, even the year before that. You know, they, every, every reliever that was on waiver wires, they put a claim in on just to see, you know, maybe we can fix this. Maybe we can fix that. And some of them, you know, too, had like the, the first round pedigrees. You know, I think it was Jesse Biddle or one of those guys they picked up and Matt Whistler, who actually turned out to be a decent, but you know, like they, they they just kind of kept grabbing every guy, hoping they could find unearth some gem or lightning in a bottle or whatever cliche you want to use. And it didn't happen. And then last year, you know, they rolled out some kids. They tried some different stuff. They knew it was going to be bad, but I think it was worse than they thought. And like Yoshihisa Hirano was going to be like their veteran presence. Well, he got COVID and missed most of the season. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. had arm issues. So like some of the older guys that they brought in, you know, on kind of bounce back hope, they didn't help them. And like, so this year they go in and really, they, you know, they do the dance with Blake Trinan. I think they were in on Trevor Rosenthal. They were working with a, a limited budget of what they could spend and it just wasn't happening. And so, you know, they make the trade for Rafael Montero, who, who was a nice pitcher for the Rangers last year. They signed Keenan Middleton, who Jerry had drafted when he was with the Angels and, and had potential until he got Mike Sochid and, you know, just led to arm surgery. And then they, they brought back Kendall Graveman as a reliever. But I mean, like, again, those three are, they're not really moving the needle. Montero, you know, he's looked pretty good and he was really good late last year, but, you know, he's not an established reliever if there is such a thing. And Graveman, you know, he's, I, Graveman has the ability to be the best of the three, but, you know, he's still adjusting to how he has to do this stuff and being a reliever. And Middleton, you know, he struggled this year. The fastball's pretty straight at times. You know, he, he, he was a guy that had a lot of potential, but I think kind of got exposed for certain things. So, like, those are their three pickups to make their bullpen better. And you're like, oh, well, that's it? You know, and so you're looking at the rest of the guys, and, again, it's young kids and – I don't know. I, I honestly, their best reliever that I saw this spring, other than me, Graveman has been outstanding and Montero's pitched okay the last few times. But the b best reliever I saw this spring from the Mariners was Rowan Elias. He was easily their best reliever. He had the best stuff. 
he had the best like kind of understanding of what he needed to do out there and he blew his elbow out and he was making, he was going to make the team. There was no doubt. Like he came in he was pumping 95 and he had that curveball was better and he had the good change up and he's so versatile and like they were, they were so excited and then he blew out. And so like, I'm looking around at this bullpen and going, well, I don't know how they're going to slot it. I don't know who they're going to keep. I mean, Johan Ramirez, their rule five guy last year, he showed a lot of talent, I mean, if there's a mascot on the field, there's a chance he'd hit it while he's pitching in a game. I mean, there just is. It's, he doesn't know where it's going half the time. And, you know, the Rule 5 pick this year, Will Vest, is kind of similar. Not a lot of command, a lot of stuff. So they've gotten a ton of stuff, guys, now. They've got all these guys pumping 96, 97, 98 miles an hour. But some of the command has been lost. And, I mean, like, the first year Jerry was here, they had Joel Peralta as one of their setup men. He was throwing 86 out there from the right side. So like they've, they've revamped it, but I don't know that it's any better. And I think it'll still be a problem uh, early on. I've alluded to the free agent market a couple of times. Jason Martinez has the Mariners sort of guaranteed contracts for 2022 at $17 million. And that's all. And I know that there's a lot that's un certain in the coming year how well the Mariners will perform this year, what the state of the CBA is going to be, sort of the availability of some of the marquee guys you mentioned. And of course, you know, free agents have to want to sign somewhere. So I don't mean to put this all on the club, but this is also a team that hasn't won for a long time and is going to be the beneficiary of, you know, a new NHL deal for Root Sports, which the Mariners are a majority owner in. I think the Trailblazers are coming to Root. So I'm curious when you think this team might be willing to spend and if that is going to coincide with some call-ups from this young core. Yeah, I felt like they should have spent this offseason. You know, and and they've spent in the past. Like they're they're not spend thrifty. You know, they'll spend. They've spent a lot. They they were the first team with a hundred million dollar payroll to lose a hundred lose a hundred games in a season. My first year on the beat. But yeah, I I felt like they should have spent this year. And I think Jerry Depoto thought they were going to spend this year. And and the aforementioned Kevin Mather kind of came in and said, "No, we're not going to do that." And and look, the pandemic they lost money, but as Kevin also said, they didn't lose as much money as some of the other teams for the reasons you mentioned, Meg. That they do have a good TV deal, that they own their own RSN, and I think they knew they were getting the Kraken. And I think they they hoped to get the Blazers, though the Blazers used them as leverage the last time to get a better deal from Comcast Sports Northwest. But yeah, like this is an organization that has made money when they've been really bad. And it's one of the reasons why Kevin Mather kept his job, despite being a pretty loathsome human being from what everybody has told me throughout the Mariners organization. Like the day he resigned, I got plenty of texts saying he should have been fired when there was a good day. But like they make money. And so like for them, like for Mather to come out and say, look, we were going to, we're going to risk it on the free agent market. And we we're going to try and manipulate it. So these guys will take less than what they expected and all this stuff. I thought that was just colossally idiotic. And I think it's a shame to their fans in the sense that, look, they haven't won. You're right. They haven't won. And they asked fans to buy into this rebuild, which they've done. I mean, like, you know, you know, tear it down, rebuild has become the new fire everybody thing. And you warn people like these things aren't, fun to endure like they're it's going to be painful at times and it was but like and i wouldn't say it's a marketed inefficiency but you had this this off season where there were a ton of people teams that just weren't willing to spend and you could have done more and i hate the floor the whole floor ceiling thing but you could have raised the floor on the um rebuild and kind of expedited it a little bit by like yeah 
give Colton Wong a little bit more money, give him the third year, bring him in. Then you have a defense. You have an infield defense with J.P. Crawford, Colton Wong, Evan White, and Kyle Seeger. I mean, that's pretty damn good. So give Colton Wong the extra year that he wanted. You know, go and give Taiwan Walker two years at $22 million or $25 million. He wanted to come back with an option for a third. That solidifies your rotation. It takes less pressure off off of uh, Logan Gilbert and the younger prospects to come up. You don't have to rush them because you have a guy that you know, you know, he's not an all-star, but he's a legitimate big league starter. I think he's probably better than Chris Flexen, you know. You add those guys, add a couple of relievers, spend the money on Trevor Rosenthal, give him the second year. Yes, he's very – it's a very volatile arm and a very volatile performance level. But look, you got to take some risks. I think that's that's my thing with the Mariners a lot of times and since I've covered them. I, I always believe that they – in their heart, they want to win. But I don't know sometimes that, one, they understand how to win or what it takes to win from a front office level and like the commitment. I mean, there's risks, there's a courage level that has to be, and there's an investment financially and and kind of just emotionally that you have to get to. And I don't know that they've ever truly done that. And, you know, you can also argue that they're really bad at hiring people to run their organization, which I don't think people will get arguments from. But like that's the thing is like you should have looked around at this offseason and said, look, we can make this rebuild happen faster to success by adding some veteran pieces that probably would cost less than we did in a normal year and we'll make it better. We'll make the roster better. And along the way, you don't piss off your number one starter, Marco Gonzalez, who's furious that they didn't sign more people or help them out because they want to win now. And and you you make everything a little bit better. You take less pressure off because like the idea that all these prospects are going to hit or all these prospects right. are going to have success at the same time is so laughable. And I'm sure there's been studies, but like prospect success, I mean, and, and like somebody was talking about the other day about the big three with Walker, Paxton, and Holton. I said, well, all three made the big leagues. So that's success right there because a ton of prospects don't. And I said, and two of them, I mean, I don't know what the career war of Paxton and Walker have been, but they've been legitimate MLB contributors for more than five seasons. And a lot of, in the eyes of like true development, that's success. Right. I mean, like if they're real guys, I mean, you didn't take, you didn't, if you get a 15th round draft pick that comes up and helps you as a reliever for one season, that's successful before, that's more success than you expect a lot of times from that pick. And so, like, I, I just, I think that the Mariners missed an opportunity for whatever reason. I think it was Mather's idea about the, the business aspect of it, but like, you got to see bigger. And yeah, it sucks that you lost money last year. But your franchise valuation is probably two point five billion with the with the RSN and everything like that, if not more. And you're asking, and these owners they they hate the concept of debt accrued. But like to me, ninety percent of this country lives in a constant state of debt. Many will die in debt, and a lot of those people that live in the constant state of debt still spend seventy dollars for a ticket and fifteen dollars for a beer. And $25 for parking to go watch a product that sadly has been inferior for, you know, 15 of the last 20 years. So you're like, how does that from an ethical standpoint seem fair? So that's why I had issues with them not spending. I thought that they could have made this roster better, maybe compete this year in a down AL West, but certainly put them in a better position that after this year, 
they'd be better set for being good in 2022 with less pressure on all these prospects that they're relying upon now. All right. Well, we will end, as always, by asking for a win total prediction. How many games will the Mariners win in 2021? I've always been saying they're closer to 95 losses than 85 wins. Um, <laughs> oh, my poor family. <laughs> and even Larry Stone, I was just talking with Larry Stone on the way back from Mesa Gateway because I had an hour. Uh, and he's like, I think this team could be really bad. And that's Larry Stone. It's like when Larry Stone right fire Kevin Mather. When you've lost Larry Stone, you've lost everyone. So I may have bet the over and the under in Vegas when I was just there. I'll say 75 wins. And that's that's being very optimistic for me. <laughs> okay. Well, you can find Mr. Optimist on Twitter <laughs> at Ryan Divish. I'm going to get blown up on all the blogs now. Like There's so, some commenters that hate me already. Now they're just going to hate me even more. <laughs> Well, you went from the many of us will die in debt to <laughs> the yeah. Mariners will win 75. So, you know, ending on an up note. So you can also read Ryan at the Seattle Times. Thank you again, Ryan. Thanks, guys. No, I appreciate the uh, the, the talk about the, the cliche thing. It was just such a funny thing. Like, I was like, I'm going all in on this. Like, if we're <laughs> going to go. Great. We had to. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I mean, I, I'm a bingo card, you know, you got to have one. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks guys. Okay, that will do it for this episode. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Nicholas Ziegler, Robert Beretta, Paul Bellows, Matt Fogelson, and Nathaniel Siegler. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We've got the two Texas teams up next, the Astros and the Rangers. So we will be back with one more preview episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then. Bye.